As I begin my sermon, uh, I want you to turn to your neighbor and share. If you're a student, what is the toughest thing about being a student right now, wherever you are? All right, so please share that with the person next to you. Go ahead. All right, uh, I'm going to ask our elder, Michael Engelbrick, what is the toughest thing about your job, Mike? Commute and dealing with people. Okay. David, what about you? What's the toughest thing about your job? Okay. Oh, you work together. You're not talking about each other, right? (laughs) You know, as a pastor, uh, there are so many wonderful things that I get to experience. But, you know, one of the toughest things, just to get you a little insight into our work, one of the toughest things that I have to do is when I am asked to go and pray for a person that is sick, especially when that person is a child. That is one of the most toughest and one of the most difficult. The call comes late at night. One night I will never forget. I was at a family gathering uh, coming back home. And a late call comes. And as a pastor, a late call is never good. I'm just going to tell you, it's never good. It was a little rainy. I'll never forget it. And I get the call and saying, I haven't heard from uh, this girl. She used to go to my former church. And she said, Pastor John, I need you to come to the hospital to pray for my daughter. She didn't give me too many details. She said, I'm in L.A. at this hospital. Please come. Here's a picture of her daughter. No, that's, my da- that's my daughter. Her name was Nicole. Okay. And I get this call. So I rushed over. And um, I, didn't, I didn't even know what to expect. So I get in. And... I look at the eyes of the parents, and I'll never forget it. It's a look of panic. It's a look of concern. And I look at the child in the bed of the hospital, and um, wires everywhere. So they start telling me what happened. They said at the daycare where she was at, she was taking a nap, and then she stopped breathing. And then when they finally caught it, called the ambulance. They got her heart jumped back in the ambulance. But they got there. And um, I sit there and I pray with them. After I prayed with them, I, I turned to the doctor and I said, hey, you know, how does it look? You know, is there anything specific I could pray for? And the doctor just turns to me and says, doesn't look good. And that's one of the toughest things. This morning, in our passage, we are introduced to an official who's experiencing all of those emotions, fears, concerns, and panic. Because in verse 47, it tells us that he has a son who is at the point of death. And if you have a child, or if you've adopted a child, or you have nephews or nieces that have gotten sick. You know that gut-wrenching feeling that this father must have. And this morning, this is the second sign or the miracle that Jesus does. And I want you to notice that it is in the same city that he turned the water into wine. In Cana and Galilee. Okay, I want you to notice that. And what we're going to look at is Jesus, the great healer who interacts with 
this official, so that we can learn some very valuable lessons about life, faith, and true healing in God. Okay? So I know it's a little heavy this morning, but are you with me? Yeah? So that's where we're going. So we're going to look at three points. The first one is this. We're going to see the official's urgent need. In verse 46, it said this. He came again, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. That word official in the Greek is this word, basilikos. It means the king's man, royalty. He was a person of prestigious rank. He was probably one of Herod's trusted officers. So, I need you to understand that he had many people under him. He was rich, had power. He would say something, and they had to move. So I'm sure with all this influence and wealth, he probably, as a good father, tried the best physicians in the world. He probably tried the most exotic of medications. He probably tried every folk medication that was out there, right? It's kind of like Korean parents. You know, who, you know, they read anything in the newspaper, and they'll be like, oh, you got to eat pomegranate. They're like, why? Well, you got to eat it, right? This father, power and control was the norm for this man. And maybe for the first time in his life, he encounters a situation where he literally has no control. He was helpless to help his son in this situation. No matter all the resources that he had in his life, it lacked. I want to pause real quick here because I think it's a good reminder for us. I don't care about your title, my title, our influence, our money, our success, our diplomas. I just want us to be reminded in this room. We have no control. It is an illusion. In an instant, things can change in your life. And you can go from good, everything's honky-dory, fantastic, and then bam! Someone is sick. You lose your job. Something happens. I know this is cheesy and you don't like it, but I'm going to make you do it. I want you to turn to your neighbor. Now, the reason why I'm asking you to do that is because of this. You heard what I just said. You heard what your neighbor said. But deep down, you might still believe it. And there will be moments in your life where something will happen and it will all of a sudden make you realize, oh my gosh, all this education, all this money, and I'm helpless. For example, uh, when my daughter was uh, three, Maddie, and uh, her fever shot up, and uh, I was giving her medicine, and then she went into a seizure. It was one of the scariest moments of my life. It's my first child, you know, never gone through this before. We grabbed her, 
rushed her to the hospital. That car ride, 15 minutes to the hospital, felt like three hours. I didn't know what was going to happen. My daughter was going in and out. She wouldn't respond to us. And in that moment, I've never felt so helpless in my life. It was once again the reminder that I literally have no control of some of the most precious things in my life. And yet, every day, I live as if I have what? Full control. And what it does, these kind of moments, although it's, it's heart-wrenching at times, it does something very powerful in our lives, which is it makes us seek someone more powerful. And we see this in the official. He tried everything natural, so now he needs to seek the supernatural. So, like us, it should lead us to Jesus. When we encounter these moments, when we feel helpless, when you feel broken, when you feel like, I cannot control this, it's a beautiful reminder that God is there, and it should draw us to him. And we see that in the official's life here. He goes to Jesus. He leaves the side of his dying son. It tells us that he was in Capernaum, right? You remember that? And he goes to Cana. I want to give you a map because this is very important. So he's at Capernaum. Do you see it? Yes? Yes? Okay, thank you. He treks 20 miles to Cana where Jesus is. Now, there's some rough terrain. It should take about 6 to 10 hours if you're walking. If you're in a rush, about 6 hours. Okay? It's very important. Just remember that. So he leaves his son thinking, my son might die while I'm away. And he goes to find Jesus. You know what I love about this is he is this nobleman, royalty. People in the community know him. And he comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus, you remember the story in chapter 3? He came at night. He comes in broad daylight. When Jesus is surrounded by a crowd and he comes, and this is the conversation. In verse 47, it says this. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. That word, asked him, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning continuously. So if I'm paraphrasing, this is what it should say. He kept on begging Jesus over and over again to come down and heal his son. Like a desperate father would, yes? He kept imploring and asking. Now, this was uncharacteristic of a person of his rank. This is unfathomable. This is how William Barclay says it. There could be no more improbable scene in the world than an important court official hastening 20 miles to beg a favor from a village carpenter. But here's the thing that I think is so powerful. He doesn't let his pride, he doesn't let what people might think because they will say something. How could this important Herod's official not go to Herod but coming to this weird miracle worker. He doesn't let those things keep him from Jesus. 
I'm going to just throw a question out there, and I want you to just kind of just wrestle with it. Is there anything keeping you from coming to Jesus with whatever burden you are carrying? Maybe it could be pride. It could be maybe what other people think. Maybe it's just belief in your own power or strength. But we see in this official something completely different. The second thing. We see Jesus' seemingly cold response. I want you to look at verse 48. The official was begging him. And this is Jesus' response. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's like, dang, Jesus, have some heart. This is a father with a sick son. Uh, My expectation would be Jesus saying like, oh, what's your son's name? Like, what is he going through? Right? That, That should be the expectation. But my goodness, Jesus, you cold. He's like, unless you see signs, it's like a rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why? Well, there's very something very important and profound and interesting in the Greek. If you look at verse 48, there are two yous. It says, unless you, first you, see signs and wonders, the second you will not believe. Take a look. Uh, do you mind shooting that up, Lee? There's something very interesting in the Greek. Okay? Because the first you is singular. The second you is actually plural. So... What does that mean? Well, Jesus was addressing the man, but more importantly, he was addressing the crowd that was following. He did this to help the man understand something about what he was asking. But more importantly, he wanted everyone to benefit from this conversation. Because what he was about to do was something that was very important for the sign-seeking crowd that was there because at this point he had turned water into wine so people were coming right he just had this great conversation with the woman at the well she's spreading word about him so now there's all these people coming like oh jesus like wow like he's this miracle worker he's doing something crazy and so jesus uses this conversation with this man to address not only him but the benefit of the crowd He does this intentionally. This is what F. Dale Bruner says in his commentary. The gospel writer is clearly calling his readers to examine their faith. Is our faith based on the spectacular, the eye-catching, the crowd-pleasing? If so, what happens to it when Jesus' work reveals the opposite? When it's about the mundane obedience or suffering or the repulsiveness of the cross? See, he does something very important and very fitting. He wants the man as well as the crowd. Are you here because you want something from me? You want to see a miracle? Or do you want 
to know who I really am. Why are you here? Do you see how profound and powerful that is? He rebukes him because he wants people that are genuinely seeking him, not wanting something from him. This is why later on he's going to say, blessed are those who have seen and yet believe. Well, the story goes on. The official is not discouraged. Because in verse 49, he continues on. And now he uses a title of respect. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. So he hears the response of the rebuke. And he says, sir, just come down. Because if I can get you to come to my house 20 miles away, and if you could just touch him or pray for him, I know everything will work out. But Jesus does it his own way. Look at this. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. Now think about that. If you're the father, you came 20 miles. Nothing has worked. And in his mind, he's like, if I can just get Jesus in the room with my son, everything will be fine. And Jesus is like, no, just go. He'll be okay. It's a reminder that we have to trust in God's method. Sometimes it just looks different than what we want. See, he had a plan to heal his son. Jesus wanted to do it his own way. And he is asking him to trust in him, in his method, in the way he's going to do it. And look at this. Look at the response of the man. The man, in verse 50, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went on his way. Man, how humbling. Can you imagine how agonizing that walk back would have been? Because what if Jesus didn't heal him? I came all this way, and now I just have to turn back? But the word tells us that he believed. The question for us is this. Do we believe looks different than the way we think our life should look like? When God says, no, it's going to be this way. Do we believe and walk and move because we trust in him or the result? The third thing. This is the most important part. The most important need is met. In verse 51, it says this. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. First question is this. What happened between verses 50 and 51? In verse 50, he says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
In 51, it says, as he was going down, a servant met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m., the fever left him. Okay. Did you get it? What happened? We talked about how from Cana to Capernaum, it's six hours if you rush, right? But it took him probably 24 hours in between verse 50 and 51. Because he goes, he meets his servant. The servant's like, oh, yeah, yesterday, seventh hour. So what happened? Why did it take so long for him to get from Cana to Capernaum? It should have took about six hours if he rushed. And as a, a, a father who has a sick son, I'd be running. Would you not? So why about 24 hours? Now, um, there's so many articles and commentaries written on just this. But it usually lands on two, two kind of common understandings. Their first one is this. Leisurely pace, the official's leisurely pace, was a demonstration of faith. Okay? In fear, the nobleman ran from Capernaum to Cana. But in faith, he walked from Cana back to Capernaum. So it took longer. Not only that, because he had so much trust in the words that Jesus promised, he rested enough to stay the night in Cana. So he ate a good meal. He ran some errands. He could have been home by dark, but due to such faith in Jesus' promises, he didn't return home until the next day. What do you think? Kel, what do you think about that? Does that sound good? He has faith. Sounds beautiful. That, 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 that can't be. Let me tell you why. Imagine yourself as a father who has a sick son. I would be running home. Even if I was hopeful and I believed in Jesus' word with all my heart, the first thing I want to do is what? Go see my son. Hear his laughter. To play with him, to feed him a meal, and to wrestle with him. Like, that's what I would want to do. Not run an errand because I believe Jesus. That's not on my heart. My heart is I want to see my son. So this theory makes no sense. Although it sounds beautiful, like have faith, take your time, eat a meal. The second one, which is what I lean towards. Why did it take so long? Well, like I showed you the map from Capernaum to Cana. That ter terrain is very rough. So if he left at 1 p.m., taking about 6 p.m., sundown is very close. Okay? And if you've ever been in any desert climate, when it gets to sundown, what happens? The weather is terrible. It'll rain. And, and it was very common during that time, that's when the wild animals would come out. And so, well, one commentator says this, which is a theory I lean towards. It says the terrain is very rough, and no matter how hard he tried to make it as soon as he could, the rough terrain and stay the night, which was very common. Although he had hope in the belief in Jesus' word, he probably didn't sleep a wink he left as soon as the sun broke so he could go home to see his son. So he started trekking. That makes more sense to me. Yes? Now, why is this important? You're like, sounds like a Bible class, Pastor John. Why is this important? Well, because 
timing, and life does not work out like the way we think sometimes. I think so many of us, we want things instant. But did you know that God is working here? But even as God is working, there are barriers to this father actually experiencing the fullness of what God is going to do. And I want to just, I'm going to just throw this out there. We need to trust in God's timing, not our timing. And that's very hard. Let's say you're trying to have kids. To trust God's timing and not your timing. That's very hard. I want to give you a word in Ecclesiastes 3.11. I want you to hear these words. It says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That God sovereignly works. Sometimes it means that it doesn't look like the way we thought it was going to look like. And God is saying, I am making something not just passable, I'm making something beautiful and good in its right time. And the question is for us, can we trust God's timing to wait when in our hearts we want it to happen now? We keep reading on in verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And then it says, and he himself believed in all his household. Okay. Second question. In verse 50, it already told us that he believed. Okay. And now in verse 53, it tells us again, he believed. So which was it? Did he believe in verse 50? Or did he believe in verse 53? Did he really maybe not believe in verse 50, but kind of now believes in 53? Like, what's going on? Was John just repeating himself? What? Why tell us twice that he believes? Well, this is where actually studying the kind of the the biblical language is so important. Because in the grammar of the Greek, we see something very important, okay? If you study this, it's very subtle but very significant. Because the first believe in verse 50, it means to agree that a fact is true, okay? The second believe in verse 53 is to believe in. It's subtle but very, okay? He's sitting in the front. It's very subtle but very significant if I say, I believe Michael, or I believe in Michael. Does that make sense? Jesus actually said. But in verse 53, he actually believed in the saving name of Jesus Christ. It was not a cognitive exercise. It was a heart exercise of faith, of believing in the Savior when he saw that his son was healed. The question is, 
is do we believe things about God? Or do you actually believe and place your trust in the saving name of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's easy for you to sit in here, hear this, and just say amen. Yeah, I cognitively understand and I kind of believe it. It's another thing to walk through the difficulty of life and to trust and to believe that God is enough and that what he provides is true healing, which I really need. Because the official here, he needed healing. He didn't know that. He just thought the son needed healing. But see, Jesus knew that the official needed healing. So he takes him on a journey to get him to not believe the words he's saying, but to place his wholehearted trust and to believe in Jesus, which is completely different. It was worthy of his care to heal the boy. It was far more needful that he should train and lead the father to faith. Because think about it. What's the point of healing his son from physical death when later on he's going to die anyways? But if he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and to have salvation, then he's set up for eternal damnation. Does that make sense? And so the most important need that Jesus wanted to address, obviously there was an urgent need. So Jesus addresses that. But he takes him on a journey so that he would get to the most important thing in his life, which was that he would place his trust in him to have eternal life forever so that he could look at death itself and say, death, where is your sting? My victory is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I cannot fear death, even death itself. So the question is, is it a cognitive exercise, your understanding of God? Is it a, oh, I want to believe because maybe I'll get something out of it? Or, God, if you do it my way and in my timing, then yeah, I'll trust you. And God takes him through a journey where he says, no, to trust me is to say what? Your timing, your method, it always trumps. It's always best, and I want to trust in that. It's tough. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. The son, I mean, the official, he believed because he saw his son that was healed. But what about those where the story doesn't end so well? What about those that pray for healing, but they don't receive it? Because in the Bible, it never tells us that everyone that heals or prays for physical healing is going to be healed. It never says that. So that's not a promise. So you are going to meet. You know what I'm saying? And the Bible is asking, even in that context, do you trust in Jesus? Right? Because if we are there for a handout, for a healing, for a sign, we're just like the crowd. 
And Jesus is looking at the crowd and to this man and saying, no. Because if you're here just for a sign, I have something more important to give to you. Which is a relationship with me. So what about those? I want to just talk to you. okay? Because we say trust God all the time in church. But what about for you? Because you're going to go through probably 2020. There's going to be a period in your life where it's going to be hard. And things don't work out the way that you want and the way and the timing that you want. And the question is, is do you believe in God? Not, but simply because. Look with me in Hebrews 11.6. It says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him and to have faith in him. That's the way to have right relationship with him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, meaning that he is God, and that he rewards those who seek him. Meaning that we need to trust and have faith in him that he is God Almighty and he is good to his people. And that's what he's asking regardless of what happens in our life. Do you trust in him? Believe in him. I want to share a story about this uh, girl. Her name is Chanel White, a Christian who prayed for healing and didn't get it. But I want you to see her faith in God. Go ahead.
See, the hope for a Christian is not in healing. It's not with conditions that we bring to God. The hope is in a Savior that we can trust in that will renew all things, that we'll spend eternity together with him without tears, pain, seizures, accidents, sorrow. And the question is, can we trust him? Not when just things are good, when things are working out the way we want. Do we trust him because he exists and he rewards those that seek him? Because he's good and he's God. I love what Psalm 73, 25 says, and I'm going to end with this. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Check this out. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God is taking all of us on a journey, and I just want you to wrestle. Because there will be moments where your heart and your flesh will fail. And that's when you'll know, do I believe stuff about him? Or do I trust in him? And my prayer is that all of us would trust in the living God. Amen? Let's pray together.